I want to let you know that we've got a group of folks right now who are on their way to India. Uh, we have uh, several. I think there's uh, six or seven of them on their way to India right now, and I want to ask you to keep them in your prayers. They're going to be here there until the 1st of October. We've got several women that are on their way there to lead a women's conference. This is the third or fourth time we've done that, and it's always a really, really uh, big event there with our mission partner in Central Christian India, uh, Central Christian India Mission there uh, in uh, Damo, where our partners <clears throat> Ajay and Indu Law are. So keep them in your prayers. Second thing I want to mention is that uh, several weeks ago I asked you, I put the tip jars out and I asked you to be willing to give so that we could purchase a house, a crack house, uh, it was right next to our, our campus in Fairfax, our Impact Fairfax campus. And I want you to know that as of Friday that we officially uh, purchased that house and own it. It's off the market in terms of all of the crime and all of the trouble that was there. That was a great deal. <clears throat> the price of that house was just $20,000, but further investigation showed that there were several liens on the house that added some money to the, some cost of the house. But you gave so generously that had more than enough money to cover all of the costs, and we have money left over for what the next step will be for that house. And so thank you for that. And then finally, I want you to know, you probably noticed around the church all of the construction, the site work construction that's going on. The city of Greenwood has a sewer project that they're involved in. They're extending a sewer. Uh, Long-term, it's a good thing, and it's a good thing for our church because it gives uh, our, us access across the street on our remaining property, what we've called the field of dreams for many, many years. It gives us access to a sewer. Uh, previous to that, if we were going to build something significant over there, we would have to uh, put in a septic tank, but now we're going to have access to a sewer. But uh, it is going to be... Uh, a little problematic for us for a little while. You probably noticed when you came to church this morning that there are signs on Fairview that say that the road will be closed on or after September the 30th. And uh, I mean, there's no other way to say it. It's just gonna disrupt the traffic flow for us for a little while. Uh, it's gonna be beginning here in the next week to 10 days. And we have been in constant contact with the city of Greenwood, talking with their engineers and the contractors who are doing the job, and we're doing every single thing we can to help minimize that disruption, but the truth is there's only so much we can do. And so I'm just giving you some advance notice. Uh, you're, we're going to be providing you with some information next weekend that kind of gives you some details about what the traffic flow is going to look like uh, at different times during that construction. They have an easement on our property, and when that's happening... Uh, but the, the biggest thing I need to do is just ask you to con just uh, hang in there with us while this is happening. It's out of our control, and uh, just ask you to be faithful uh, and support your church on the weekend when this is happening, even though it'll be a little bit of a disruption for all of us. So I don't know what else to say except for that. Um, we uh, hope that uh, it goes as quickly as possible and that we'll have cooperation from everyone. All right, it's good to be back in the pulpit after being gone last weekend. I was in Phoenix. I was preaching at a church in Phoenix. They had five weekend services, two on Saturday night and three on Sunday morning. I just got away from three Sunday morning services, and I went someplace where I could do five. But uh, nobody ever accused me of being the smartest guy in the world. Uh, but it was a good experience. And because of the three-hour time difference from there to here, I was able to get up on Sunday morning at 6 o'clock and watch the 915 service online, and I thought Andrew shared a great message related to the second week of Room for Doubt and the question, does God really exist? Well, we're going to continue the series this weekend, and we're going to talk about the next question, which is, isn't the Bible full of myths and mistakes? And as we do that, I want to begin by asking you a question, and it's just real simple. Can you remember the best sermon you've ever heard? Think about it for just a minute. 
Can you remember the best sermon you ever heard? Maybe some of you are like me and you've been in church your entire life and so you've got a lot to choose from. The best sermon you've ever heard. I can remember the best sermon I've ever heard. It was preached by a man named John MacArthur from Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to put those words on the screen, and we're going to do the public reading of Scripture a little bit different this morning. Instead of opening our Bibles to a passage, we're going to stand together and read this as one voice. And so if you're able, go ahead and stand with me this morning, and we're going to read Psalm 19, verses... 7 through 11, this is from the New International Version Bible. Let me hear your voices. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. What I remember most about that sermon was the masterful way MacArthur handled verses 7 through 9 and the first six lines of that text. If you were to go back and look at that text in your Bible, you would notice that each line in verses 7 through 9 contains three elements related to God's Word, a title, a characteristic, and a blessing. As he describes God's Word, as David wrote this psalm and he describes God's Word, he gives it a title, a characteristic, and he includes a blessing or a benefit. For example, Psalm 19 and verse 7 says this, the law of the Lord, there's the title, he calls God's word the law of the Lord, is perfect, there's the characteristic, and then he says reviving the soul, there's the blessing or the benefit. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And as I listen to that sermon, I can remember being absolutely captivated by the explanation of the Scripture's as the law of the Lord and the statutes of the Lord and the precepts of the Lord and the commands of the Lord and the fear of the Lord and the ordinances of the Lord. But it was more than just the different rich titles that David used in Psalm 19 for the Scriptures because as MacArthur talked about the multiple benefits, the multiple blessings of the Scriptures, I felt my heart saying yes over and over again because of the many times God's Word had revived my soul and given me wisdom and brought joy to my heart and light to my eyes and on and on and on. But here's the deal. The Bible has never been just another book for me. And I've always believed it was true. I believed that by faith when I was young and I believe that by faith and by reason now that I'm older. But I realize, I think we all realize, that's not true for everyone. And a lot of people view the Bible through a lens of skepticism and a lens of doubt. That's why this weekend's message is called, Isn't the Bible Full of Myths and Mistakes? If you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we had our special guest speaker, Mark Middleberg, he, you know he told the story about being a freshman in college and going to that philosophy class where his professor systematically challenged the traditional view of God in part by completely discrediting the Bible as a divine book. Maybe you had a similar experience in your life. Maybe you have a skeptical friend or an irreligious relative or someone at work who doesn't believe in the Bible, and not only that, belittles you because you trust in the reliability of the Bible. 
Well, here's what I want you to know. There has always been and will always be people who reject the Bible, but there are solid reasons to trust in its reliability, and I want to spend some time talking to you about three of them this morning. But before I do, I want to reiterate something that Andrew said in his message last week when he talked about the question, does God really exist? He said it is absolutely essential for all of us as believers to study and research these questions we're talking about on our own. So far, it's been, does God really exist? And today, it's isn't the Bible full of myths and mistakes? In fact, I'll just be a little bit more bold than Andrew was last week because my age gives me the privilege of doing that. <laughs> it's pretty disingenuous for anyone who is a Christian to say that they really want to be equipped to respond to the questions and the doubts people have about matters of faith but at the same time, not be willing to take the time to study and research the answers to those questions on your own because, friends, there's no shortage of resources available. When Mark Middleberg was here, he brought two great resources with him. We brought, we brought 17 boxes of books with him that contained two books, Confident Faith and Questions, the questions Christians hope no one will ask. And I was thrilled that all the books were sold. In fact, on the end of the morning, we ended the, Saturday, the, the final service on Sunday with people signing up for more books, and we made sure that they were shipped here so that you could get those books. I hope they're in your hands today. A little over a year ago, we had Lee Strobel in our weekend services as a part of our One Life series, and, and what a prolific writer he has been in terms of understanding and defending your faith. If you just limited yourself to the books that he's written that begin with the words, The Case For... It's incredible the number of resources he's provided, the case for Christ, the case for faith, the case for the Creator, the case for Christianity Answer Book, the case for Christmas, the case for Easter, the case for miracles, the case for grace. There's no shortage of resources. That's just two authors. And each one of us who are believers, if we're sincere about our faith, we need to take responsibility for our faith. And I want to encourage you to make sure that you do that. Having said that, I'm going to use three words this morning to talk about what I consider to be the reliability of the Bible. If you like to take notes, it'll be a little bit of a different kind of a message than what we normally have because it won't be based in one passage of Scripture. But if you like to take notes, then I want you to write down next to number one the first word that we need to think about when we think about the reliability of the Bible, and that's the word history. Write down next to number one in your insert the word history. I say that because the Bible is a historical book. When you pick up the Bible, no matter where you start reading, you read about history. You read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and on in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you read about Jesus Christ and you read about the journeys of the Apostle Paul and others. The, book, the Bible is a book of history. Actually, the Bible is a book with 66 books inside of it that are all about history, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. There are thousands of events presented in those 66 books that are presented as history. But the question is, how accurate is the history? And the answer is, it depends on who you ask. One of the most fundamental criticisms of the Bible over the years is that it was written too late to be reliable history. And so we'll talk about that for a moment. And for the sake of time, we'll just limit our discussion to that, or to the context, rather, of the New Testament, to that question or that criticism related to the New Testament. The idea is that the New Testament wasn't written until a century or two after the time of Christ. And so during that time, all kinds of legends and all kinds of misinformation found their way into the New Testament. 
But research shows that simply isn't true. The events recorded in the Bible, particularly those in the New Testament, are based primarily on eyewitness testimony. For example, let's just talk about the Apostle John for a moment. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three epistles to the church that are 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John in our New Testaments, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And when he wrote, he made it clear that he was simply reporting what he had observed firsthand. In fact, look at these words on the screen from 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. This is how he begins his first epistle. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the words of life. He's writing based on empirical evidence, what he has seen, what he has heard, what he has touched. Other parts of the New Testament were compiled by writers who got their information directly from eyewitnesses as well. These writers include the historian Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Look at the screen and see how Luke begins his gospel. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He writes and says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Notice Luke says that he was careful so that he could be certain. New Testament writers were making the claim that they were eyewitnesses to the actual events or at a minimum that they had obtained their information from those who were actual eyewitnesses. And their accounts were written down early, soon after the events happened and within the lifespan of the people who walked with Jesus. In fact, research shows that it's now widely accepted, even among skeptical historians, that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all written within the first century. At one time, it was fashionable to say that the New Testament was written much later than that. For example, Cambridge professor and liberal theologian John A.T. Robinson once made that claim, but then he did additional research and made a dramatic turnaround. In fact, he later changed his previous beliefs and wrote a book called Redating the New Testament, Redating the New Testament, which corrected what he and others had been teaching. And in the book, he argues that the entire New Testament was written well within the first century and even admitted that the claims that it was written much later were often based on what he called a tyranny of unexamined assumptions and an almost willful blindness. Blindness to what? To the facts, to the truth. The earliest letters of the Apostle Paul were written within 25 years of the resurrection. 25 years of the resurrection. That includes 1 Corinthians, which includes an entire chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, that's the go-to chapter in the Bible when it comes to all things related to the resurrection. Historically speaking, 25 years ago, that's just not a very long time. In fact, just out of curiosity, for those of you who are old enough, can you remember where you were and what you were doing 25 years ago? Let me see Hand, if you can remember where you were and what you were doing 25... There's got to be more than a dozen of us who can remember <laughs> where we were and what we were doing 25 years ago. Okay? 1994. 
I was a senior pastor of Northside Christian Church in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, 1201 North Elm Place, 74012 was the zip code. I don't have to look that up. My family lived at 104 West Albuquerque. The zip code was 74011. I don't have to look that up. Andrew was, and Tricia were both students at Spring Creek Elementary School. Andrew played on a baseball team called the White Sox, and Tricia had just begun piano lessons. Sandy was just beginning to be famous in our community for her custom-decorated cakes. <laughs> and I could go on. Can you remember where you were and what you were doing 25 years ago? You can, and you can especially remember the significant events of your life. 25 years within the time of the resurrection, the apostle Paul wrote about the resurrection, and this is what he wrote. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's just a common term for death in the New Testament. Then He appeared to James, then to the other apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Listen to this, that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still, what did he say? Living. I wish I had more time to talk about this, but I need to move on. The Bible is a historical book. It's a reliable historical book. Let me just make some brief observations, though, before we go to the second word this morning. There is no record of anyone, no record of anyone who would have been a contemporary of the New Testament writers who factually challenged anything that they had written. No one, no record. Sometimes people ask, what about other biblical writings, books like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary or one that's been in the news in recent years, the Gospel of Judas? Why were they excluded from the Bible by the early church? And the answer is they weren't excluded by the early church because those writings didn't exist when the church was still early. They were written a century or more later. Most of them were written about A.D. 175 by members of a heretical religious group known as the Gnostics, and none of them were authored by the biblical characters who, whose names they bear. That includes the Gospel of Thomas, not written by Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, not written by Mary, the Gospel of Judas, not written by Judas. The third thing I would make just as an observation is that there are, if you're somebody who enjoys history, there are protocols in place to judge the historical reliability of ancient books. And I say that because one of the most often repeated criticisms of the Bible is that you can't trust it because it's been translated and retranslated so many times, and today it wasn't written by anybody but men. The Bible is not the end of some long chain of translations from one language to another, like Greek to Latin and Latin to German and German to English and on and on and on. The Bible is a direct translation from ancient manuscripts in the original languages of Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. And what makes the New Testament stand out, historically speaking, is we have so many more copies than we have for any other ancient work, and the copies were written so much earlier. 
In fact, according to a man named Daniel B. Wallace, we have an embarrassment of riches related to the Bible compared to the earliest manuscript of other works of antiquity. He goes on to write, the average classical author's literary remains number no more than 20 copies. By comparison, for the New Testament, we have more than 5,800 copies of the early Greek manuscripts and about 20,000 more in other languages. Not only do we have more than 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do the average Greco-Roman author, the manuscripts of the average classical author are no earlier than 500 years after the time of the original writer, and when it comes to the New Testament, it's mere decades. And there's similar evidence for the Old Testament. In just a few weeks... There's several of you who are going to be traveling to the Holy Land with me. When we're in the Holy Land, we're going to visit a place called Qumran. I think I've got some pictures that I'll show you from one of my recent trips. This is uh, really close to the Dead Sea, obviously, because this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. I, it's, it's an unusual part of the Holy Land. I, I've obviously never been to the moon, but I look at this part of the Holy Land, I think this must be what the surface of the moon looks like. It's just so much rock and so... Uh, vacant of so many other things. In the mid-1940s, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in this place called Qumran. The Dead Sea, Scroll, Dead sea Scrolls include fragments of every single Old Testament book except the book of Esther. One of the scrolls for the Old Testament book of Isaiah was found almost completely intact, and it was over 1,000 years older than any other previously discovered copy of Isaiah. Once the Dead Sea Scrolls were compared to the modern versions, the modern Hebrew Bible proved to be identical word for word in more than 95% of the text, and the other 5% consisted mostly of spelling variations. I wish I had more time to talk about this, but the bottom, tra the bottom line is modern translations of the Bible available to us today are accurate and trustworthy renditions of the original biblical texts, and they can be read with confidence. Does that mean that there are still not, that there aren't still questions that are raised by critics? No, but based on every historical protocol in place that's used to authenticate ancient manuscripts, the Bible is reliable. The second word I've got here is the word believability. You can write that down next to number two. Having talked about the reliability of the Bible based on historical protocols, I'll be the first to admit that the Bible isn't like any other book. Because the Bible is filled with ancient prophecies. It talks about a virgin birth. It talks about divine miracles, water being turned into wine, walking on water, people being supernaturally, spontaneously healed, people rising from the dead. The Bible is no ordinary book. And many people will respond to that by saying something like this, well, we live in a day and age of science, and I just can't believe those kinds of stories are true. Now, you could ask someone who says that, have you really investigated the evidence for or against these things and concluded that they didn't happen? And chances are they're going to say, no, I don't need to because these kinds of things just don't happen, which means they've predetermined what they're going to believe with no investigation at all. And we need to encourage and challenge people to be more open-minded and to pay attention to the testimonies of the eyewitnesses of these events who were actually there. Last week in his message, Does God Really Exist?, Andrew talked about the evidence for an intelligent designer, he, someone who designed the universe and fine-tuned it to a razor's edge of precision so that life could exist. You remember when he talked about gravity, the law of gravity, and how even the slightest, slightest, too small to even describe change in gravity 
would cause life to cease to exist on this planet. He talked about the evidence for a cause behind the universe that is spiritual, that is eternal, that is unimaginably powerful and wise. Talked about the evidence that there's a moral lawgiver who is perfectly good and serves as the source and standard for objective truth and principles. But beyond that, friends, there is a lot of other powerful evidence for the believability of the Bible. How about fulfilled prophecies that point to the truthfulness of the Bible? Isaiah 53 predicts the coming of a suffering servant who would be punished in our place and even says in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5 that he would be pierced for our transgressions. That was written 700 years before the time of Christ and centuries before crucifixion had been invented. Look at these words on the screen from Psalm 22 verses 16 through 18. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And if you know anything about the Scriptures at all, you know that's a remarkably accurate description of what happened at the crucifixion. And yet it was written 1,000 years before the time of Christ. A man named Peter Stoner who was chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College and a passionate believer in biblical prophecy, along with 600 students from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, looked at eight specific prophecies about Jesus and came up with the statistical likelihood of all eight of them happening in one man. Now, just eight, just eight. There are people who believe there are as many as 300 prophecies related to Jesus in the Bible. But they just looked at eight. And the conclusion was staggering related to the statistical likelihood of all of those being fulfilled. They said it was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. It's all documented in a book that he wrote called Science Speaks. And he described that finding like this. Let's try to visualize this chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all of the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket was one in 10. You don't have to be very smart to figure that out. But then he said, suppose we take the number of 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars and lay them down across the state of Texas they would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly over all the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say, this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? The same chance that the prophets would have, would, would have had writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. Now, a God who can fulfill prophecy on that level is a God who can change water into wine and can walk on the water and provide supernatural spontaneous healing and cast out demons and on and on and on. And have you noticed as you've read your Bible, we've been studying the gospel of Matthew for a long time from November of 2016. And as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, have you noticed that when Jesus performs supernatural miracles, none of his enemies, and Jesus has a lot of enemies at this point in his life, contextually in the Gospel of Matthew, none of his enemies denied that the things that he did happened. 
The evidence was so overwhelming that instead of denying that the miracles took place, they tried to find him at fault in other ways. They tried to accuse him of breaking laws, and they tried to catch him on technicalities. I think about Matthew chapter 12 when one day Jesus was in the synagogue, and there was a man with a withered hand there, and it was the Sabbath. you remember this story? And he said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand, and it was completely healed. His enemies didn't attack him by saying, you didn't do that, or by saying something else like that. They attacked him by saying, you did this on the Sabbath. You broke the Sabbath because that constitutes work, healing a man's hand on the Sabbath breaks the Sabbath command. When we were privileged to have Mark Middleberg with us a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a man named Gary Habermas who wrote a book called The Historical Jesus that, has, that cites 39 ancient sources outside the Bible to provide over 100 facts about Jesus' life, about his death, and about his resurrection. That book was published by College Press, which was literally just around the corner from the college that I went to in Joplin, Missouri. And we don't have time to talk in detail about archaeology and how it proves the reliability of the Bible. A skeptical archaeologist from Cambridge University spent three decades, three decades digging up and confirming to his astonishment detail after detail of the writings of Luke. Luke wrote, again, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. His name was Sir William Ramsey because Luke was under fire by liberal archaeologists and historians as not being an accurate writer of events when he wrote his New Testament books. And in the end, Sir William Ramsey concluded in his writings that Luke had correctly identified 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without error, and ultimately he declared Luke to be a first-rate historian. The Bible isn't a book of myths. It's a book filled with verifiable facts that you can stake your life on. The third word, write this down quickly, is the word contradictions. And I'm out of time, really, so we won't be able to talk much about this, but there are critics who say that the Bible is full of myths and mistakes and contradictions. Some say even thousands. Now, honestly, some of the references they cite are pretty easy to explain. For example, each of the Gospels tells the story of the resurrection, but two of the Gospels, Matthew and Mark, talk about one angel being at the tomb, while Luke and John talk about two angels being at the tomb. And so the question is, is the Bible... a is that a contradiction in the page of the Bible? Or could the answer be just as simple as that whenever you have two, you have one? I, I want to show you a picture of a book that I have in my library. What a title, right? The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. I wonder what kind of a marketing firm came up with a title like that. Written by Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe. Now... Uh, in the big book of Bible difficulties, the introduction lists 17 different mistakes people make in claiming mistakes or contradictions in the Bible. I don't have time to list them all, but I'll list a couple of them for you real quickly. First of all, number one, assuming that divergent accounts are false ones. Assuming that divergent accounts are false ones. And we just talked about that. Just because two or more accounts of the same event differ does not mean that they are mutually exclusive. For example, all four Gospels talk about the resurrection. Two say that the tomb there was one angel, and two say there were two angels. That's not a contradictory report because whenever there is two, there is one. Let me ask you a question. I mean, I'm looking out the audience today, and there are probably close to a 1,000 people in this room today. Do you think all 1,000 of us, if we went home and wrote down our observations of the weekend service today, would write it down exactly the same? I really love the shirt Chris was wearing. I hated that shirt Chris was wearing. 
There was a man with a blue shirt. Actually, there were a hundred men with blue shirts. And on and on and on. And I always have known for years, I've been a preacher for almost 40 years, I know there's two sermons that are preached every week, the one that I preach and the one that's heard, and they're not always the same. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out how to handle that. One of the, the, the second difficulty in Geisler and Howe's book is forgetting that the Bible is a human book with human characteristics. And I think this is a marvelous truth about God related to the Scriptures, that He allowed the Bible to be written as a human book with human characteristics. With the exception of passages like Exodus 31 and verse 18 that literally says about the Ten Commandments that they were inscribed by the finger of God, the Bible was not verbally dictated to the writers. The writers were not secretaries of the Holy Spirit. God allowed them to write down what they did in their own literary style with their own characteristics. The clearest description of how this happens is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. You should write down that reference because it's an important passage related to how we got the Bible. Peter says, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretations, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word carried there is the Greek word pharaoh, which means moved along by another force. Just picture a leaf being carried through along a stream, rather, by the current of the stream. That's the idea there. So what that means is that God didn't dictate the precise words of the Bible to the biblical writers like they were stenographers. And it's clear if you take time to read and study the Bible that the writers' different personalities and styles and education and cultural backgrounds all come through in their writings. These biblical writers were supernaturally moved and influenced by the Holy Spirit, listen to this, to convey the message of God as men to men, men to men. And that's all I have time but I'm going to do this. I'm going to recommend a couple of books if you're really interested in this kind of study. And one of them is a repeat. <clears throat> First of all, this is a great book, The Big Book of Bible Difficulties, written by Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe. It's about that thick. It is the big book of Bible difficulties. Here's one if you like something a little bit more simple and direct. 77 Facts About God in the Bible, written by Josh McDowell and his son, Sean McDowell. I have that book in my library as well, and I've read it, and it is very effective. I'm out of time. Brian can close. We'll come like this. You know what, friends? I could hold a weekly Bible study for an entire year talking in much greater detail about all of these things, but here's the bottom line. You know what the most important thing you can do if you really want to be able to defend, trust in, and defend the reliability of the Bible is you pick up your Bible and you read it. Pollster George Gallup Jr. once said, that Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. So here's my challenge, and whether you're a believer or a non-believer alike, pick up a Bible and read it for yourself. Psalm 34 and verse 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Romans 10, 17, Paul says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. In other words, faith comes when we are exposed to God's word. In late 2012, a 75-year-old woman named Marion Shirtliff purchased a Bible in a used bookstore near her home in San Clemente, California. After making her purchase and returning home, she looked at the Bible and discovered a couple of folded pages tucked in the middle of the Bible. The contents of the yellowed notebook page sheets contained a child's handwriting that looked familiar. And to her amazement, 
she discovered her name at the top of the first page. And when she looked closer, she realized that she was actually reading a four-page essay she had written as a 10-year-old to earn a merit badge from the Girl Scouts in Covington, Kentucky, more than 2,000 miles from where she lived in California. By her own account, she was deeply moved, and in talking about it, she said, I opened the Bible, and there was my name. How many of you had that same experience? We open the Bible, and we see the story of our lives reflected in the people and their lives. We see the evidence of our lives People just like us, people who pursue faith and hope in God, people who do it sometimes in spite of their own difficulties and infirmities, people who see their lives as they battle depression or their own doubts and their own questions or lust or pride or failure and on and on and on. Because this is not an ordinary book. This book that contains 66 different books that were written over a period of 15 to 1,600 years by 40-plus different writers in multiple language, languages is not an ordinary book. It is, in fact, the revelation of God to man, and it can be trusted. Father in heaven, thanks so much for a chance to talk about this today and now just lead our response. Guide us and direct us and help us, Father. Help us to be willing to pursue on our own the truthfulness and the reliability of your word and help us to be able to defend it primarily by the quality and the character and the commitment of our lives changed lives. In Jesus' name, amen.